This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Busson. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll learn why strength training is so important as we age with rehab specialist, Dr. Sender Deutsch, DC. We'll discover the Michelin star restaurants with tastemaker, Brigitte Foisy. And lastly, we'll find out about the power of perception with authors, Linda Ross Vega and Gary Jordan. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot. If global temperatures increase by one degree Celsius or more than current levels, each year, Billions of people will be exposed to heat and humidity so extreme they will be unable to naturally cool themselves, according to interdisciplinary research from the Penn State College of Health and Human Development, Purdue University College of Sciences, and Purdue Institute for a Sustainable Future. Results from a new article published in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences indicated that warming of the planet beyond 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels will be increasingly devastating for human health across the planet. Humans can only withstand certain combinations of heat and humidity before their bodies begin to experience heat-related health problems such as heat stroke or heart attack. As climate change pushes temperatures higher around the world, Billions of people could be pushed beyond these limits. Whether improperly closing a door or shanking a kick in soccer, our brains tell us when we've made a mistake because these sounds differ from what we expect to hear. While it's been established that our neurons spot these errors, it's been unclear whether there are brain cells that have only one job, to signal when a sound is unexpected or off. A team of New York University neuroscientists has now identified a class of neurons, what it calls prediction error neurons, that are not responsive to sounds in general, but only respond when sounds violate expectations, thereby sending a message that a mistake has been made. I'll be joined by Andy Donald in a moment, but first, a little bit of business. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. Andy Donald is a certified geriatric pharmacist and president of the Health Depot Pharmacy. His passion to help patients and deliver personalized services led him to launch the Health Depot, Canada's only online clinical pharmacy. He's active in his profession, serving on several committees, including the Alzheimer's Society of Ontario's Ontario Dementia Care Alliance, and he's the Prescribed Pharmacy Ambassador for Canada Health Infoway. The Health Depot Pharmacy is an online clinical pharmacy providing free, no-obligation consultations. They'll meet with you to discuss your medications and answer your questions and deliver your prescriptions free anywhere in Ontario. And for more information, you can visit thehealthdepot.ca to learn more. 
Welcome back to the show, Andy. How you doing? Not too bad yourself, Jamie. How are you doing today? This time of year, Andy, I always seem to struggle with my sleep. I don't know why it is, but it, it appears to be cyclical. And I'm hoping that you can set us straight because I, I don't think I'm alone. I don't think I'm the only one who has these problems. What do you think? No, it's very common, especially at this time of year, as it gets a little bit darker. And there's reasons for that. Absolutely. It's counterintuitive, right? You would think with more nighttime hours, people would be getting more sleep. So why is it that we're having trouble, even though it's getting darker? Well, it's because our body kind of gets out of whack a little bit. So what happens is it's really all about our eyes, literally. (laughs) If light hits the back of our eyes, natural light hits the back of our retina, our body makes hormones, signal molecules that are called serotonin that wake us up, give us energy and make us happy. And as it gets darker, we're not getting as much light hitting the back of our eyes. And on the flip side, so when there's no light in the back of our eyes, if there's darkness on the back of our retinas, then our body makes an actual hormone that's opposite, that called melatonin, that relaxes us and makes us more sleepy. So as it gets uh, darker out, we actually naturally get more sleepy all the time. Okay, but shouldn't that translate into better sleep? <laughs> you would think, right? But it's just, it's as there's more, like you should, but it, what happens is, you know, I mean, heck, like it even hits us at like 3, 4 o'clock, like sometimes darkness, right, starts to hit. Yep. 4, 4.30 around December. And if you start to get sleepy and you even take a nap, it throws our whole sleep cycle out of whack. And if you even take a what ends up happening, people fall asleep a little too early, wake up to, uh, in the middle of the night. It just can throw our whole body out of whack as our you know our natural rhythm changes it, then it, it'll throw our sleep off as well and that goes into believe it or not jumping ahead a little bit but on uh, with power naps if you do fall asleep earlier and you know after dinner particularly this time of year if you take a nap for over half an hour if you go into deep sleep unfortunately after half an hour of sleep then that generates a lot of our muscles and our our brain a little bit, and that'll throw off our whole rest of our night's sleep. So it increases the amount of people nap and uh, how drowsy you are. The more dark it's out, the more your body wants to sleep, believe it or not. If you used to sleep six hours a day and now it's dark for like over half the day, your body's going to want to sleep for eight to 10, 12 hours a day. I choose to do my workouts some days at around uh, 4.30, 5 o'clock because I find that's when my energy is at its lowest and I can sort of flip the switch and get the endorphins going after like a good row or something like that. And that means I actually get a better night's sleep when I do eventually hit the hay. Does that make sense? Absolutely, because the biggest thing that helps our bodies have the urge to need to fall asleep is the need to have that deep sleep that I talked right. about. Yeah, It's the kind of sleep, you know, after half an hour, a lot of people recognize this. If you have a significant other and, you know, they fall asleep and after half an hour, you're wondering if they're breathing. You want to go poke them with a stick and say, are you alive? It's because your body's on total shutdown and you're hardly even really, really shallow breathing. That's your body removing the toxins and regenerating your muscles. So the more activity you do, the more of that deep sleep you need to have, and that's actually what drives people to need to fall asleep in the first place. So if you're very sedentary and you're not doing a lot of activity, you don't have that that natural biological urge to need to fall asleep and regenerate. I would imagine the regulation of our sleep gets worse as we get older because everything seems to like break down or work less efficiently. Is that true? And does that play into what we were just discussing? 
Absolutely. So those hormones I kind of mentioned, our body makes less of them as we age. So you have less of the happy wake-up hormone and less of the sleepy melatonin hormone. Our body makes less things all over. But then also we do uh, typically do less activity and have less muscles as we age as well, which then means less need to get into that to regenerate. And as a result, we get into less deep sleep. And that sleep cycle that we go through in the night where you go to deep sleep dreams, deep sleep dreams throughout the night, it becomes a lot more of a restless, lighter sleep naturally anyways, with more likelihood of waking up in the middle of the night and having a tough time falling asleep again. Right. And then it becomes a vicious cycle because if you're not getting adequate rest through your sleep, then, you know, you're, you're not going to feel like doing those things, those physical activities that would, you know, make you sleepier. So it's, it's, Absolutely. it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? You're, yep. you're, you're sleepy during the day and you're restless during the night, which nobody wants. So if that's true, should we be focusing on lifestyle choices like exercise and diet, et cetera, to help with our sleep? Or should we be looking at perhaps some medications that might help us with our sleep patterns? Absolutely. So lifestyle and habits are definitely the most important. <laughs> you want to do those always first before reaching for any medications, most particularly with sleep medications, because the majority of sleep medications that are often prescribed out there are actually, they only work for a short period of time and they actually can rob you of sleep quality. They can actually cause more problems. So it's, it's very important to focus on, you know, lifestyle and habits first and then there are some safe medications, if you've already done all the lifestyle and habits, that can be added on that are a little bit safer than some of the more regular ones that are out there. And we can discuss that coming up for sure. Okay, so let's stick with lifestyle choices that we can make. So we've already mentioned one, which is exercise. So let's start there. What kind of exercise is relevant? Is it any kind of exercise or is there some that are better than others? What are your thoughts? Really, any kind of exercise and get your heart rate up a bit and use your muscles. So it depends on your health and your level of activity. Right. It could be walks for some people, right? You know, doing a 20, 30-minute walk. If you're, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, like more intensity, like you could do rowing, you could do running, depending on what your body is. But just any kind of exercise is important. Fresh air, getting your heart rate up a little bit, right? Exercising your muscles, then the need to recover that night makes it so much easier. A lot of people during the pandemic might have noticed if they went out and did a walk with family for like an hour, half an hour, hour, they probably slept like a baby that night because they got fresh air and they exercised their muscles, helped them to need to regenerate that night. So that's for the exercise. Right. But then there's a lot of like other lifestyle things like avoiding caffeine, you know, stimulants or nicotine, you know, avoiding them six hours before bed. I have to personally avoid caffeine 12 hours before bed. So only ha I only can have caffeine in the morning or can disrupt my night's sleep. Alcohol makes very poor sleep quality. But then, you know, making sure you know, you regular sleep schedule every day because then those hormones kind of adapt and help us to naturally trigger at a certain time to fall asleep. No screen time an hour before bed, particularly, you know, TVs and cell phone screens, right? Because they emit that blue light and that's what really helps us to keep awake and that alert hormone that we were talking about hits the back of our eyes and keeps us awake. So needing to shut that down an hour before bed. But then the, keeping those naps, if you are going to nap, during the day, 
and particularly in the afternoon, keeping it to 30 minutes or less, right? So you only go into light sleep. The second you go into deep sleep, you start to regenerate those muscles and you lose that urge to need to fall asleep at your normal sleep time. Yeah, I love myself a good nap, I have to tell you, Andy. Like, if I can get a nap on the weekend, that pretty much makes my weekend. But I hear you. I don't like being unconscious during the middle of the day for more than 30, 45 minutes. So you, exactly. said the tr- you said the trigger's 30 minutes. Is it really as little as that before the deep sleep comes on? Or is yes, that- 30 minutes is when you really start to hit into that deep sleep. I mean, if you made it 40 minutes, you're probably not getting too much deep sleep. But anytime you go over an hour, you're definitely getting too much of that deep sleep that it can throw off if you normally go to bed at 11 o'clock at night, for instance, and you fall asleep on a regular basis. If you have a nap for over an hour you know, at like three o'clock in the afternoon, you probably won't be able to fall asleep at 11 for sure. Might be one, two, three in the morning. So it can really, if you get too much of that deep sleep, then it can really hinder your urge to fall asleep later in the day. What are your thoughts on meditation as part of, you know, the sleep hygiene process that people go through? What are your thoughts? Absolutely. It helps because what that does, especially if you have stress and anxiety, it's like, you know, meditation slows the heart rate down, really relaxes you. Same thing, kind of things is like, you know, getting your mind off things. If it's racing, like counting sheep, deep breathing exercise, that's what really meditation does, right? Yeah. And then there's a lot of things that, you know, there's a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy, a lot of things you can do. If you have anxiety, you shouldn't be working in your bedroom, right? Mm-hmm. Anything stress-related, you should not be doing in your bedroom. So you don't, you don't have an office in your bedroom because then there's like state-dependent memory. When you're in your bedroom, then you'll start stressing and thinking about work. You should be doing stress and related things down in another room. So when you come up to your bedroom, it's a place of relaxation. It helps you fall asleep, right? Mm-hmm. Things like that, that can help as well. And there's actually a lot of professionals that actually help you with some of those barriers to sleep, especially if there's stress and anxiety around sleep. Yeah. I mean, uh, this occurred more when I was practicing law, but I would frequently get work mares. You know, where you, you, you relive sort of events that are occurring, like I would wake up in a panic that I had forgotten to do some filing when, of course, that wasn't true. It was just sort of, I don't know what was going on in my subconscious, but it was, it was sort of freaking me out. And I had to sort of teach myself, you know, if you wake up in the middle of the night worrying about work, you know, that is like the worst time to make decisions, right? Like your, your mental processes are so bad in the middle of the night. You shouldn't, be making, you shouldn't be making any decisions. You shouldn't be working through any problems if you're waking up in the middle of the night. So I know that's easier said than done, but I think you just kind of have to tell that little mantra, this isn't real, this isn't right. When I wake up tomorrow, my brain will be straight and I can tackle the problem then, but there's no good in doing it now. I don't know. Absolutely. And that's why it's so important to leave no, you actually doing work or anything in your bedroom. Don't do it there. Go to another room. So then you can have that kind of same mindset that, you know, if you do wake up in the middle of the night, it's less likely to happen because you're not thinking about that stuff. But you're saying, I don't do that in this room. Right. Uh, (laughs) So it can kind of help you. Right. It's like, nope, this is for sleeping. I'll deal with that when I wake up. I shudder for all those people living in condos where like they have to have their offices in their bedroom because if it isn't, it it would be in the bathroom. (laughs) There's like no, no space for it. So. Do what you can. Work on the veranda. Okay, so we've given people a lot of food for thought on lifestyle choices, but I know there's still a cohort. Even though people do all those things correctly, they still may need some help. So let's review some of the medications that are available with some pros and cons. You got it. So melatonin. 
So as we age, if you have low melatonin, that can help. But you've got to be careful. I mean, it's typical. I mean, used for jet lag and resetting your sleep cycle. Most of the medications for melatonin in a pharmacy, the 3, 5, and 10 milligram pills, way too much. That helps reset your sleep cycle. You shouldn't be taking that on a regular basis. So we need as little as 0.3 to 1 milligram um, for is what's safer for older adults. Mm-hmm. So you can find a one milligram tablet over the counter in a lot of pharmacies. We have one as well. You could even take a half tablet of that on a regular basis to help accommodate for having low melatonin as we age. When do you take that? Do you take that in the morning or in the evening? Does um, it matter? Two hours before bedtime, typically, okay. right? Mm-hmm. And so if you were going to reset your sleep cycle, you you typically take it five days. Let's say you're going to Australia, right? Yep. You take it five days before you get to Australia, high dose though, well, in the time you want to fall asleep in Australia. <laughs> so and okay. that can limit how much jet lag you get. But that's only for like, you know, shift workers, you know, going from nights to days or for, you know, people traveling for jet lag. But for regular use, it's a very, very low dose, two hours before bedtime. Okay. What else? Trazodone and mirtazapine are the other two safer medications. They're typically used for uh, mood, but they have specific re- um, trazodone. Very safe. Uh, it's used for helping with sleep, and it doesn't affect your rapid eye movement or your, uh, or your deep sleep much at all, either mer- that or mirtazapine. Trazodone in 50 milligrams to 100 milligrams, but you have to take that regularly three to four hours before bedtime. It doesn't work right at bedtime. You have to take it before, and you have to take it on a nightly occurrence. Whereas mirtazapine is kind of a weird one. <laughs> Only low doses are effective for sleep. So 3.75 milligrams to 7.5 milligrams. So the government of Ontario only covers a 30-milligram tablet. So you can imagine you can only take a maximum of a quarter tablet. (laughs) You have to get a pill cutter because if you take too much, it can actually wake you up. So it's a weird one, but it's very effective at a low dose because it binds to a receptor that makes you sleepy at a low dose. At a higher dose, it actually starts to bind to a receptor for serotonin that makes you more alert. So... Okay. You take that one an hour before bed. So those are the more safe ones for sleep. But then for the unsafe ones that a lot of people use are antipsychotics, amitriptyline, anything antihistamine, so gravel and Benadryl, and dear God, benzodiazepines and zopicone. Those ones there, they ruin, obliterate sleep quality. They, li- they can really affect your ability to have dream sleep. And dream sleep is what's important. You know, it's not, it's not what regenerates our deep sleep. Benzodiazepine can inhibit deep sleep as well. But, I mean, it's, uh, it inhibits our uh, dream sleep is what helps us consolidate new memories and learning. And some of those medications that have those anticholinergic properties can actually lead towards dementia over time. If you're obliterate, obliterating your ability to have dream sleep, you're not consolidating new memories and learning, and that can affect your cognition over time. But with any of your medications, it's very important you don't stop them yourselves, that you talk to your doctor or a physician to guide you on those changes. Because some of those medications, like benzodiazepines, can take even 6 to 12 months to titrate down and come off safely. Fantastic. Great advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. That was Andy Donald. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the importance of strength training as we age on The Tonic. OMTO is back. OMTO is a yogic celebration of the winter solstice, a full day of specially curated and themed yoga classes led by the most dynamic and popular instructors from the top studios in Toronto. Hundreds of yogis from across the GTA will come to partake in this one-of-a-kind yoga experience and practice in unique themed classes. 
nourishing your body and mind at a time of year when we need it the most. Guests can reserve their space online in advance. There'll be music, contests, free giveaways, and special offers for all. A portion of the proceeds from ticket sales will go to the Scott Mission. OMTO, December 17th. Save the date! If you're looking for premium natural products, choose New Roots Herbal. Proudly Canadian and family-owned for over 35 years. What really sets them apart is their dedication to quality. They source only the highest quality ingredients and test each one in a state-of-the-art ISO-accredited lab. You get the purity and potency you expect. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. To learn more or find a store near you, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Sander Deutsch is the co-founder and clinic director of Shape Health and Wellness Centers in Toronto, celebrity sports therapist and chiropractor. He has also developed a unique individualized concept of integrated therapy and training, which combines the most effective evidence-based treatment modalities and exercise techniques to create a personalized treatment plan just for you. The concept is on the cutting edge of physical therapy and personal fitness. Under his direction, SHAPE has assembled an unparalleled team of healthcare providers and conditioning specialists to implement individualized health and fitness programs, ensuring that you achieve your goals. And for more information, you can always visit shapetoronto.com. Welcome back to the show, Sander. How are you? I'm good, considering. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so muscle mass and aging and health, all these things are interconnected. So what happens to our muscle mass as we age? So ultimately, as we age, the quality of the muscle starts to change from being strong in terms of the muscle fibers to changing to being a combination of both fat and muscle. And so that muscle starts to to ultimately weaken as we age and and go through this process that's uh, in the scientific community noted as sarcopenia which is age-related progressive loss of muscle mass and strength. And, you know, the main condition is muscle weakness, fatigue as we get older and go through this uh, aging process. And the muscle starts to atrophy and weaken. And, you know, you kind of start to see that flab that you see on people as they start to start to age. When does this process start? It primarily starts around the age of 30 is what it's been noted in, in various scientific literature. And around that time, you start to see, you know, a 3 to 8% decline in muscle mass, muscle strength per decade as we age, unless you're engaging in a resistance strength training program. And ultimately, it's best to start as early as possible, you know, starting at an early age, because you can ultimately, you know, gain more muscle mass throughout your lifetime to prevent this type of atrophy and decline and also engage in you know, more muscle fibers throughout that time period prior to, you know, the start of 30. And my understanding is that the progression of the muscle mass loss actually increases as we get older. Is that true? Correct. Unless we, you know, are engaging in a resistance type training program, then the scientific research now has shown that you can actually, you know, when comparing, for example, you know, a 70-year-old, you can have a 70-year-old that's equivalent to a 40-year-old that's you know, untrained, for example. So you you can get younger, so to speak, as you engage in the strength training program and start to create new cells and create these, you know, reactions within the tissue through 
lifting heavy weights or uh, taking muscles to failure. I know that's true, but my point was, as we get older, the muscle mass loss becomes more rapid, right? Correct, yes. It becomes more rapid, but you can prevent that decline. Right. Along with like that muscle mass change, you're also going to have you know a decrease in fiber size, strength, peak muscle uh, capacity in terms of the oxidative stress that it can handle, and so forth. Okay, so... I guess listeners might be curious, you know, why does it matter? So as we get older, we lose our muscle mass. That's a fact of life. Why should we care about that? You know, the biggest component is ensuring your quality of life, longevity, but also preventing a fall as people age. Because, you know, the number one, you know, risk factor above 60 is falling. And you're falling because of loss of strength, loss of stability within the joint, loss of balance, equilibrium. And strength training will prevent that along with, you know, maintaining your ability to function your activities of daily living, you know, throughout your lifetime. So you've mentioned it a couple of times now. What does strength training do to our bodies? How does this fit into sort of fighting the loss of muscle mass? Ultimately, you're, you're breaking down cells at a very microscopic level in terms of the mitochondria and causing these cells to regenerate. So... You can think of it as, as growing new tissue, you know, like a young baby, how they're developing. And if they get a cut, they heal so quickly because cells are constantly turning over. So you can look at strength training as one's ability to turn over cells at a very microcellular level to enhance function, you know, prevent disuse, atrophy, and prevent the slow decline that occurs in terms of what we were discussing previously and the decreased, you know, enzyme activity, the type 2 fiber size strength and your ability, you know, to power through certain activities. So my understanding is it's never too late to actually start strength training, right? Like, obviously, you know, if you've never done it before, you you don't go straight for the heavy weights, but there really shouldn't be any impediment to at least getting started, even if you're starting in your 50s, 60s, or 70s, right? Correct. Yeah, it's never too late to start. And, you know, the thing to remember for the listeners is that you know, it doesn't even have to be heavyweights, for example. You know, anyone can start even just with their own body weight. The key that the research shows is taking that muscle, that exercise to failure in order to cause adaptation and create strength and power back into that tissue that, that hasn't been used. Okay, so let's delve into... When we talk about strength training, what sort of strength training are we talking about? And let's, let's focus on people who are maybe 45 plus. And obviously, there's a big difference between somebody who's 45 and somebody who's 70. And also, you know, there's differences between men and women, too. So when we're talking about strength training, what are we actually talking about? What kind of regimen are we looking at to make a difference? In order to make a difference, it's minimum twice a week, although I would recommend and most people would recommend currently, you know, three times a week. So you could try to hit, you know, each body part twice a week in order to see the best gains. I think, you know, two good researchers, one out of McMaster University, Dr. Stu Phillips and Dr. Schoenfeld out of the States, New York, has really shown that, you know, the more you can take the muscles to fatigue, the more you're going to make this adaptation and, and change. And it, it can just be with very light, you know, body weight exercises, you know, three times a week, 10 sets total per muscle group, for example, you know, working between 8 to 12, 15 repetitions. Okay, so let's talk a bit about this notion that you've, you've put out there, taking the muscle to fatigue. So for somebody who doesn't know what that means, how would you describe that? What does that mean? 
That means where like that last repetition, last couple repetitions, you're kind of feeling winded, so to speak, you know, kind of like walking up a flight of stairs if you're deconditioned or you start to kind of feel it where, you know, you're a little bit out of breath where you can't push. You can feel that that burn in the muscle, kind of like what we used to refer to as that that, that lactic acid buildup in, in the muscle where you can kind of really feel it and you feel like that pump, like a bodybuilder would refer to where, you really can see the increased blood flow and circulation to the tissue. Right. So like the bulging veins, you know, you're, you can see your arms get bigger if you're doing curls. And, you know, a mirror is your friend, right? Like you can watch yourself do this and you can actually see the changes in real time, right? Correct. That, that's the best way. If you're looking at yourself in the mirror and you can see that, get that instant feedback, even touching the muscle, like if you're doing, you know, yep. one arm or one leg at a time and you can feel that pump, but you can also connect the mind to the muscle you know, that's also where some of the research is now, too. Like, even if you just even think about that exercise or that muscle pump, taking that muscle to failure, even that muscle mind to muscle connection in, is huge in terms of uh, actually preventing, you know, atrophy. If one is even, uh, for example, bedridden, you know, or had surgery, just even thinking about contracting that muscle will prevent muscle loss. So I have a routine that I do probably three times a week in addition to other things that I do, but this is just a resistance training set that I do. And it takes me with my starting stretches, it takes me 45 minutes and it's a rotation of 12 exercises that I kind of mix and match. And, you know, sets will differ depending on the muscle group, either I'm going to do 12 or 15 or 24, depending on whether I'm alternating with limbs or things like that. And that's what I do. What do you see with your clients in terms of like that type of resistance training to maintain muscle mass? How long should these workouts take? Yeah, no longer than, you know, 40, 45 minutes. Yeah. You know, if your workouts are lasting longer than an hour, then you're not working hard enough. You know, it's way too much time and you're not pushing yourself uh, hard enough during those exercises because within 40 minutes, you should, you're going to feel some type of also neurological fatigue when you're taking the tissues to this type of failure. So anything longer than that, then you're actually not going hard enough. And you want it to be high-intensity training. That's what the research is showing because that's what's ultimately going to, you know, give you the most bang for your buck and produce the most, you know, changes at that cellular level. Other than keeping your muscle mass up, what are some of the collateral benefits of strength training? Well, the biggest thing, you know, for me and, you know, my patients and clients is preventing pain and also, you know, rehabilitating someone from pain because you're creating these new neuromuscular skeletal connections between the nervous system and also the cellular level. You can, you know, take someone that's been in chronic pain and get them out of pain, or you can also use it as, you know, performance enhancement and also from looking at an injury reduction standpoint, uh, strength training will reduce injuries by up to 50%. You're going to also see in the elderly huge cognitive uh, changes because of the increase of neuromuscular skeletal changes and that connection from a mind-to-muscle connection we were discussing before. The research shows that you're helping to prevent a different neurocognitive uh, decline in, in the elderly uh, patients, as well as increased posture, body awareness, uh, balance, stability, uh, these are all huge uh, benefits of strength training. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. That was uh, Senator Dorch. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss Michelin star restaurants in Toronto on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. 
Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Success enabler, idea broker, and award-winning marketer at the PR department, Brigitte Foisy has been the strategist behind some of Canada's and the world's biggest brands for over 30 years. She's also vice president at Chefs Canada, the organization that manages our national culinary teams. What she enjoys most is connecting people and being the bridge to successful, mutually beneficial partnerships. It's been a while. Welcome back to the show, my friend. How are you doing? It's been a long time. I'm great. How are you? I'm okay. You're my favorite foodie, by the way. Is that true? Yeah, one of my favorite foodies. You're the one I talk about restaurants and you know. I know. Great. Same. (laughs) I feel the same way. The feeling is mutual, as they say from Young Frankenstein. <laughs> so we we bring you on because I know you you have your finger on the pulse of of what's going on in the city and and you know Michelin has come in and and you know touched the foreheads of their favorites. So what's new? What's going on? What what have they been up to? Who's gotten the accolades? Well, aside from Michelin, there's so much going on. So I'm excited about this show. So a couple weeks ago, Michelin was back in Toronto to announce. Only two new stars, unfortunately, wah, wah, wah. Uh, but also a new green star distinction, which is a status reserved to only a handful of restaurants worldwide committed to sustainable gastronomy through ingredient sourcing, food waste reduction, obviously, energy management, as well as employee well-being. So the first two cloverleaf icons were given to... A little drum roll. <laughs> Free, <laughs> Free Lou and White Lily Diner, two establishments I knew nothing about. They joined a select list of just over 300 restaurants around the globe, including French Laundry and my chef girl crush of all time, Zatelier Crenne in the U.S., Wow. So I don't know Freelu and I don't know White Lily Diner, so they're now on my list. Freelu's in Tornhill, White Lily is on Queen East. Have you been? Yeah. Okay, so my friend has been trying to get me to go to brunch to White Lily for like two years. And, and, and <laughs> <Time to go. laughs> typical Torontonian that I am that kind of lives sort of middle, middle of the city west, I have to like really put my thinking cap on if I'm going to go all the way down to the east end, because as you know, getting around the city is so difficult. But he's been raving about it for years, so apparently it's well-deserved. But I didn't know that they were a sustainable restaurant. That's very interesting to me. Yeah, they organic produce, to, so they grow their own organic produce on the, on the farm and to supply their diner, but also 15 other restaurants in the city. They raise chickens for their eggs, and they just planted an orchard, apparently, anyway. So that's definitely on the October-November list. <laughs> I, can, I can tell you, having their own chickens for the eggs is a labor of love. I did that one summer, and it's, it's a lot of work. You get a lot of tr- The eggs are amazing. They are, but it's a lot of work. I'll just go to the farmer's market and get... <laughs> I, I, I can tell you. We figured out the cost after, like, the feed and renting the chickens. It was, like, it came out to, like, $20 a dozen. So so it's not a value proposition of that, I assure you. What else is going on? What else is new and exciting? So 
There's other restaurants, obviously, in Toronto that are focused on eco-friendly practices. Mm -hmm. And we know a lot of them. We've talked about Lendon Hall and Permal Reset several times. If you've yep. not been, it's time to go and walk the grounds. I was just there. It's totally inspiring. Uh, I was just at Pearl Morissette a couple of weeks ago to record an interview with Chef Eric Robertson, and it even gives a city girl like me the desire to live on the farm. There you go. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a lot. And there's also Antler, which yep. I feel like We've not talked about Antler in a while. He's always been focused on foraging and hunting. Michael Hunter is an icon of the Canadian terroir. I would say along with my good friends, Ron McKay from Canoe, who are known for their nose-to-tail approach, Mm -hmm. which further amplifies their devotion for cutting back on waste. So I totally applaud them. There was Rash and Beverly on Queen, who were considered like zero race leaders in the city. And unfortunately, they're closing their doors uh, oh, at no. the end uh, on Friday. So if there's still time to go, their young chef Vishal there is very talented and one to look for to see where he's going to land because he's totally worth going there. When you say antler, the only thing I think of was their ongoing war with the vegans, <laughs> where they would taunt each other from like in between the window, right? Like that's yes. Oh well, that's how he got uh, he got known. Other places in the city right now, one star additions were Caposado, which I haven't been, but Twenty Victoria, sure, which is who I was cheering for. Twenty Victoria Chef Julie Hyde showcases her talent in this tiny but little mighty space, and it's a lot of seafood and local produce. At the core of a seven-course menu, there's obviously a la carte, but a seven-course dinner will run you about 175 per person, including a service fee in lieu of a tip, a tip there. So that's a, a great value proposition. When we start talking about $300 meals as a value proposition, I, I think we can safely say we're in the age of food inflation, but I understand what you're saying. I agree. No, 175 se- 175 Sorry. That's not bad. Well, it's not bad. Not for a seven-course meal, I suppose. No. That's tr- no, that's, yeah. that's true. That's true. I hear you. All right. What else have you got up your sleeve? What Bib you- gourmands? Yeah. Have, have you been to any bibs? For sure. Yeah. I think they're great. Those are great value. And Enoteca Social. I've been going there for years. Well, like we're regulars yeah. there. They know what we're going to order. They know which vermouth I prefer. Like that's <laughs> that's how often we're there. And there are others too that I'm glad got recognized. Although it makes it much harder to get reservations. That's for sure. Yeah. Oh, for sure. It's not a star, but it's definitely not a consolation prize to get a bib. Bib, by the way, is named after the Michelin man. His yep. name is Bibendum. So it's given, uh, I like quality restaurants, like, you know, that provide diners with a two course meal and a glass of wine or dessert for under $60. So it's great, great value. Mm-hmm. Uh, the two additions that I love the most are definitely Sunny's Chinese in Kensington and Kin from my fresh chef Nui. Uh, if you haven't been there, you should totally start with our signature chef tasting menu. It covers pretty much our entire menu, so it gives you a taste of a little bit of everything. Well, Sunny's sister restaurant, uh, which is Mimi's, I believe. Yes. Yeah. Mimi, where you have to cut the noodles with the scissors, that's that's my favorite uh, show dish to get there, but I haven't gotten to Sunny's yet. How does it compare? Is it similar or is it more downscale? What's the difference? It's a little more chill. It's a little more casual kind of atmosphere. Great cocktails. It's kind of this little hidden kind of space, which makes it fun. I don't 
I, I personally don't love Mimi's Chinese. I feel I get more value and say a better quality in Chinatown. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Mimi's Chinese. I feel it's a little overrated in my uh, personal opinion, but I, I got some great dishes at Sunny's. So I think okay. that's worth going. Lots of great openings this week or this month. Yep. Daniel Corona, we need to talk about him. Uh, ex Dan Alfonso is, uh, has just opened Danico on College and Bathurst and that bank on the corner. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's Italian fare, but very much contemporary uh, twist, like pink sturgeon's caviar with langoustine tartare, like super iron, like produce and iron uh, ingredients. The restaurant is gorgeous. And I was there at the opening with Chef Romain Avril, who was very envious of his show-stopping kitchen. Uh, there, a eight-course tasting menu will set you back approximately to 25 a person. When you said the bank building, are you talking about the one on the northeast corner where Blowfish used to be? Yes. What was there? It's, I know- a, big, it's a big bank that is there on the corner. Yeah, they yeah, yeah. took over the bank. It's okay. gorgeous. It's okay. gorgeous. Even the wine cellar is in the in the safe of the bank. It's very nice. That's very fun. On the other end of the spectrum, my friend Joe Friday is just opening Friday's Burger Company on Bay Street at the Table Fair and Social Food Hall. And if you're trying to eat your way through the city, Top Burgers, that's the spot to add onto your list, is Smash Burgers and Fried Chicken Sandwiches are worth the trek. Mm-hmm. It's the eighth anniversary of Miku Toronto. Uh, in the financial district, and to celebrate, Ed Chef Sushi, uh, Chef Junusuki Fujikawa, has created an extravagant eight-course anniversary menu, and that's uh, $175 a person for the entire month of October. And finally, there's Dear Saigon that just opened on Midland and Scarborough, OEB Breakfast, opening a second location on Toronto Street, and Toronto's Tundu Ramen is opening in Hamilton in the next couple of weeks. And I think we don't talk often about restaurants outside the Toronto core. So maybe that would be another show, restaurant outside the GTA area. Okay, but driving distance though, right? <laughs> well, Hamilton is 45 minutes away. No, 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 my, my, my son, no, 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 no. I'm, <laughs> I'm cool with Hamilton. My son went to McMaster and I used to drive him back and forth. I can do the trip in 45 minutes. It can be done. There you go. I'm just saying, you know, given our listenership, we should probably keep it within driving distance of the city, right? Yes, yes. I mean, Langdon Hall, Perlmutter said that's about an hour, I would say. Sure. Each, each, uh, but I'm there just like tons, like the pine in Conningwood. I think we talked about the pine before. Yeah. Not too sure. Love him. But there's so much great gems everywhere. All right. So- PC. All right. You know. We'll bring you back. We'll bring you back next month and we'll we'll do great food that you can drive to from the city. Sound like a plan? Okay, but we'll go we'll have to go on a road trip now. There we go. Thanks for coming on the show today. <laughs> have a good day. Bye. That was Brigitte Foisy. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the power of perception on the tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Welcome back to The Tonic. 
your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Linda Ross Vega has been fascinated with what makes people tick since she's a child. Her curiosity about human diversity and ways to bring about the best in people led her to a multifaceted career in banking technology and behavioral consulting. With over 35 years of experience in senior management and as a business owner-entrepreneur, Linda Ross is an expert at harnessing the power of perception to help individuals and organizations implement change, empower collaboration, and develop talent. Gary Jordan, PhD, has over 40 years of experience in clinical psychology, behavioral assessment, individual development, and coaching. He earned his doctorate in clinical psychology from the California School of Professional Psychology in Berkeley in 1980. Always fascinated by the theories about types and styles, Gary found none of the theories he studied integrated internal experience with observational behavior. Beginning with his doctoral dissertation and continuing through his years in practice, he worked to create practical, usable style theory based on perception. Welcome, both of you, to the show. How are you? We're doing well. Glad that you had us on today. Yes, thanks for having us. So let's start at the beginning. We're going to talk about perception today. What is perception and why is it important to know how it works? Great question. Perception is what our brain does with sensation. And I'm going to break that down a little bit more. But you have five senses, sight, hearing, touch, taste, and smell. And your brain, those receptors receive information from the environment around us. But it doesn't mean anything until your brain makes meaning out of that sensation. And that what that meaning is, is perception. So perception is how our brains make meaning out of the information they gather from the world around us with our five senses. And why is that relevant? Because that's the way we create and understand our world is through perception that we create all the schema that we carry in our head, the maps, the theories, the ideas, the stories about who people are, about who we are, what we're experiencing in the moment. So without perception, we don't experience life. So perception is critical to the way that we interact in the world. Without perception, we don't interact. I would imagine that not everybody perceives all that intake the same way. Do we all perceive the same way or are there different styles of perception? That's also a great question. And yes, we do all the process of perception works the same for everyone, but how we filter that perception is different between people. And so we believe that there are styles of perception. We we have identified six, but the point being is that when that information comes in through your senses, your brain processes that information and we you're hardwired with how you filter that information how your perception works about what's important to you what makes a difference how you're going to take action based on that and so there's actually a three-step process the information is gathered by your senses your perceptual style filter is applied by your brain and it says oh this part's important or this is meaningful and then there's a there's a last step a third step where your brain also says, let's let's look at life experience very quickly. Has this been true for me before? Or is this new information? Do I create a memory for this? Is this, you know, inconsequential? So it's those three things that happen for all of us, but the conclusions we come to and the actions we take are different based on our perceptual style. Is a perceptual style inherent or is it a learned process? We believe it's inherent. We believe that, that it's that it comes hardwired with you uh, when you're born. So it's, it's not directly uh, heritable, meaning you can have a different perceptual style than your parents do. But we believe that the one that you have comes with is part of your genetics and it does not change. 
over your life. You learn more about it. You get more sophisticated in using it. You learn what its strengths and its challenges are, but it doesn't change. Is it a yin-yang type of thing where certain styles have strengths in some areas and weaknesses in others? Or is there a perceptual style that is better than the others? There is more of a yin-yang. So every style has unique strengths and some blind spots because of those strengths. For example... Some styles see opportunity where others might, you know, that half, the glass half uh, empty, half full type of approach where others might see caution. So it's more like your perceptual style is the foundation of your natural strengths because of how you see the world. There are some things, some skills that are going to come so much more easily to you and more naturally for you. They're, they're literally organic for you. And there are some skills that are going to be harder for you to do. And you may choose to not do them at all, which is also a wise thing rather than chasing stuff. So, you know, perceptual style is definitely a strengths-based model. It's the idea that do more of what you do best because this is what you do and different styles have different strengths. Um, you know, human beings were created as, you know, we're better in community than we are in isolation. There's all sorts of research to back that up. And the thing is, is that if we were all the same, it would be extremely boring, but it also, we'd never get anything done because there right. wouldn't be anything to complement each other. So different strengths and different weaknesses by style. Okay, so how would one know what sort of perceptual style they have and build upon those strengths? How do you glean that? Well, that's something that you can, you, know, you can read our material, you can read, look at our website, and it gives a description of the six perceptual styles. And people will often go, well, I think I'm this, and I think I'm that. But over the years, over the last 45 years, we've created a very accurate, uh, very reliable and scientifically researched, proven valid instrument that helps people, uh, you know, measures what a person's perceptual style is. And that's the most accurate way to do it. Okay. So can you give examples of what those styles are? And I appreciate it's probably, that would probably take more time than we have in the interview, but can you sort of give me top line explanations as to the styles? Sure thing. So I'll do it alphabetically because it's just easier for me to remember that way. Sure. Uh, so let's start with activity. Activity people uh, make meaning in the world through experience. It's it's the experience of what they're doing. So they tend to be very engaged in life. They jump in. They uh, experience it. And they tend to be storytellers because they like to share that experience so that you can experience it too. Then there's adjustments. Adjustments people see the world as knowable if they're given the time to know it. They're very uh, logic and logic oriented. They are keen observers of the world. They see complexity and ripple effects where it goes. Natural diplomats. Um, there's flow. And these folks experience the world as in moving in a natural course where everything is dependent and supporting of each other people, environment, etc. They tend to be very uh, naturally empathetic. There's goals. These folks see the world as full of challenges and obstacles and problems to be solved and situations to handle and things to move, move through and forward to get things done, very accomplishment-oriented. Um, there's methods. These folks are very fact-based and rational. Uh, they like to understand the the pieces and how the pieces fit together they're incredibly good at creating step-by-step -step, uh, processes to take really complex stuff and break it into really usable doable things 
And then there's vision. And these folks are sort of the eternal optimists. They see life as opportunities and possibilities. And they're always sort of looking for the next thing, very entrepreneurial in spirit. So you see there's sort of a really wide variety where everyone, again, has strengths based on their style and everybody has blind spots based on that as well. So obviously, you know, with all those different types of styles, those blind spots may may overlap. So how can people get along if they have different styles of perception? How do you, how do you bridge those gaps? Well, one of the things that we talk about is that, that you know, people will often ask, is there a, a best style to be? Right. Yeah. Or is there, a, if I'm this style, what's the best style for me to get along with? And our response is that you can get along with any other style, but you will have challenges depending upon what style the person is. They arrange, the styles arrange themselves in a, a circular pattern theoretically. So every pattern, every style has two next door neighbors who they share some high level commonalities with. But when you, you know, get down to it, you discover that that there's that the, you begin to see the fundamental differences. Every style has an opposite in 100, 180 degrees. And it's often like, you know, we see these people uh, being attracted to each other. And then the very things that attracted them to each other begin to repel each other because, uh, you know, it's like I found, found that fascinating early on. And now it just bores me. Would you please stop? And then there are two styles that are what we call one off. And the way I describe that is, you know, the person says, oh, I understood every word that you just said, but I have no idea what you were trying to communicate to me. So the challenge that most people without knowledge of their styles believe that their style is the correct style and, there are, and other styles don't matter. Mm-hmm. When you identify your style, the first thing we do is help you really feel good about you. And then the second thing, this is a long-winded answer to get to answer your question, is begin to say, okay, now you have to begin to, to appreciate the diversity that there are five other styles that are different than you. And we begin to, to talk and teach people, how do you listen for the cues that tell you what style that other person might be and to help you to validate what they're saying and that will op- that opens up the communication for them to hear what you have to say. That's really interesting. Culturally, in North America, for example, do we tend towards certain styles just because of the way we operate and have structured our lives? You know, our research says that, or has told us that, you know, there really is any difference by culture or race or ethnicity. But it's also true that different situations value different strengths, right? Yeah. So you do you do see, um, you know, North America, we were founded by, you know, adventurers and people, you know, conquerors, people, you know, expansion, very entrepreneurial spirit. And those, there are two styles that have several of those strengths. And so they tend to be used as poster children for that type of work. There's, you know, different organizations tend to take on the flavor of the people who are in charge. And those strengths tend to be valued a little bit more. So while every style is equal in value and all of them are needed in the world and all of them are good and great, the point is, is in different situations, different styles are going to shine. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you both so much for coming on the show today. It's been a pleasure. Thank really you. appreciate your time. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Andy Donald, Sender Deutsch, Bridget Foisee, and Linda Ross Vega and Gary Jordan. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. 
For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic Magazine. The fall issue is now available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.